Welcome to The Republican Professor. Today we have a very special guest, Professor Robert F. Uh, Robert G. Kaufman <laughs> of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Thanks for being here, Professor Kaufman. Thanks for having me. Professor Kaufman is uh, someone that I met a long time ago. Well, I mean, it's not that long ago, but um, it was during the Bush administration, Bush, George W. Bush, when I first uh, started teaching at Pepperdine back in 2007. And I saw in the university bookstore uh, his book called In, In Defense of the Bush Doctrine, which is published by the University of Kentucky Press. And it was uh, fresh off the presses at that time. It was in the uh, faculty section of the bookstore. And I couldn't help but getting it. I had to get it. So I got it and I read through it. And I even used it for a political philosophy course that I taught. Um, and... Um, had some sat, had quite a bit of pushback at the time. I recall it was very controversial at the time during uh, George Bush. Um, yeah, I thought I would be eligible for a lifetime membership in the witness protection program. Really? Yes. Uh, when it came out, it was before the surge. So mm -hmm. uh, however controversial Iraq remains before the surge, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book, uh, the pessimism ran very deep, and there were very few people publicly willing to defend Bush 43, as he's known. I knew the other four of them. So uh, it was, um, I was uh, a lone ranger, I believe, in the academic world at as, that time. As far, as far as I could remember, it seems like that was the case. Well, let's give a little bit more context here. So then afterward, when Obama got elected and pretty deep into the Obama administration, um, Professor Kaufman wrote this other book called Dangerous Doctrine. And this is also University of Kentucky Press, got the same uh, style format, same color scheme. And the subtitle is called How Obama's Grand Strategy Weakened America. I believe this is 2016. Is that right? It is. Yes. Okay. So that's pretty deep into it. And you have this, uh, I know you have other stuff you've written, but one of them is a book that I re read a long time ago on Henry Jackson. I'm using it as a mic stand here. And um, I really enjoyed that book. Now, full disclosure, he was a Democrat. <laughs> But uh, he was a senator he was, from Washington. But he was um, a Harry Truman Democrat, meaning yeah. right. he was a Democrat who really was one of the stalwart figures in waging the Cold War. Also, many of the people who were with Henry Jackson ended up in the Reagan administration. So he was uh, the bellwether for that. The theme of the Jackson book was his role in making sure we didn't lose the Cold War in the 70s when it looked possible so that Reagan could win it. And also, I looked at Jackson as a vehicle uh, to assess the transformation of the Democratic Party. Uh, not surprisingly, if you think about it, 
Senator Lieberman of Connecticut very much liked the book. And I identified Senator Lieberman in the final pages of the book as the last of the Scoop Jackson Democrats. Uh, initially, he told me he very much liked the book, but disputed my conclusion that he was the last of them. About three years later, when the Democratic Party essentially banished him, he walked over to me at a meeting in Washington and said, still love the book and you were right about my being the last of the Scoop Jackson Democrats. And to give you an idea of what the academic world is like, uh, Senator Lieberman asked me to write his biography. Yale University Press would have been a natural. He grew up in New Haven, went to Yale undergraduate, Yale Law School, Attorney General of Connecticut, Senator from Connecticut, Republican vice presidential candidate, first Jewish vice presidential candidate, and Yale University Press, his alma mater, his home state, wouldn't touch it, even though the senator uh, gave me full cooperation because wow. he betrayed uh, progressivism by supporting John McCain in 2008 rather than uh, Barack Obama. If you want an encapsulation of everything wrong with the academic world these days, that's not a bad story to start with, I think. Wow. That's chilling. Yes. yes. Chilling. Yeah. Um, how did you get into the, this discipline? Um, my parents were my parents were both educators. I'm from Massachusetts. Uh, my mother's from the city of Boston. Dad grew up on Nantucket Island, uh, where I spent. I I can I can't hear you anymore. Can you? Are you still there? Okay, hold on. Let's... Did you lose me? Uh, just for a brief moment, uh, I lost, I lost uh, just uh, the part about Nantucket. Yeah. Well, you don't want to miss that part. Dad yeah, grew yeah. up there, uh -huh. and um, we always had history books uh, in the house. And my father had served in the Marines. My uncle uh, in Nantucket at the Battle of the Bulge. So we were always on the, the vigilance side when it came to international relations. And one summer in Nantucket when I was, I think, 12 years old, uh, we had about five days of sun, a lot of fog. Uh, <laughs> that was the era before the Internet. It was more like the cat in the hat when it was raining. There was nothing to do. So I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich one summer, and that was profoundly um, influential in my world outlook and shaping what I wanted to do in my career. And in that book, I identified the villains, totalitarianism of any variety, and the heroes, uh, Winston Churchill. And I, I think it's a simplification, but not by much to say that the rest of my career was and has been an emendation on that original formative experience 
Uh, wow. If you look at what I write, um, Jackson was a cold warrior. Uh, the, the people I defend and criticize, it, it all comes out of that uh, worldview that um, sees the 1930s as uh, the emblem of what happens when democratic countries don't take mortal threats seriously. And I think, unfortunately, we've been in that phase now for a long time with Obama, the leader of the pack, when it mm. comes to China. Uh, yeah. One of the things about Obama's presidential memoirs uh, his it's good news for me because I didn't have to change a word of my book published in 2016. But uh, the wow. bad news is he doesn't have any learning curve. Uh, on page mm -hmm. 338, and I give you the page because it's so astounding, uh, he writes, this is after COVID, after China weaponized it, Obama writes, China is not a threat to us unless our overreaction to it makes the threat a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. So he learned nothing whatsoever wow. Um, wow. from the failures of his administration, including Ukraine and certainly including dealing with China. Yeah. Yeah. He had a failure uh, in Ukraine. What was that? 2015? Uh, you're talking about the loss of Crimea, right? Yeah, it began in 2013, and it's almost uh, a preview of what happened to the first mate on his foreign policy, Titanic, Biden. After Almost immediately after Obama flinched on his red line in Syria, oh, yeah. you could uh, date from that moment, it was the, at the Olympics, Putin's planning to invade Crimea uh, by proxy. Uh, China also intensified its uh, predatory behavior in the South China Sea because that was an inflection point convincing our enemies that Obama was um, unserious and um, uninformed. And that's a preview, honestly, for what Biden did in Afghanistan, I don't think you have to be a strategic genius in terms of timing and consequence to to date Putin's determination to invade Ukraine uh, from the moment that Biden, after a series of conciliatory gestures, not only abandoned an ally, but left $80 billion of equipment on the ground that the Chinese and the Russians could rush in to retrofit before sending it to, to Hezbollah and Hamas. And, and I think uh, when the history of this is written, if we ever get archival evidence from the Russian side, uh, that event has convinced not only Putin, but Xi Jinping, Iran, and the North Koreans now all working in tandem. I wrote a piece for Victor Davis Hansen called the axis of tyranny. Uh, mm -hmm. These powers are cooperating loosely in a, in a similar, if not identical manner to the imperial Japanese, Mussolini, and uh, Nazi Germany in the 30s while we're sleeping. Mm. This is, a, I think, a lot of... of different moving parts that are going on and it's it to me it's really impressive when someone 
seems to have a handle on it and can see a theme that uh, has occurred before, something maybe rooted in human nature. And do you, you see the world stage as kind of almost like a like lunch in seventh grade or something, except for there's no teacher's aid and there's no, <laughs> there, there's no, there's nobody watching, you know, it's, it's just a bunch of bullies <laughs> or, and you got your friends maybe. And um, how do you, how do you see the patterns? I guess. Like, well, I know that how old are you when you read that book on Nazi Germany? Uh, 12. And if someone says, uh, you're not a normal person. A, I'll agree with that. And B, <laughs> that's sort of an example that the problem started early. It wasn't a, a late uh, life condition. Uh, yeah, yeah. There were roots of it. Uh, at did the you, now your par- did your parents have the same kind of views? and sim- No. Under- okay. No. Um, my extended family uh, did, um, but not my parents. And that's another thing that that sort of prepared me for a career in academics. Um, I was a rebel to my environment. I'm a. I went. Uh, I was born in Boston. I have four yeah. Columbia degrees. I went to Georgetown Law. I was the only Republican on the faculty at the University of Vermont in Burlington, and Burlington is Bernie Sanders' political yeah. stomping ground. So I'm used. To, I'm used to being. Um, a dissenter or skunk in the room. And, and I chose a career given my uh, orientation where, where it's very good. I had that uh, training and inclination because the academic world has gone from bad to worse since I started many years ago at Columbia. Although I have to pay tribute to my Columbia professors. Uh, They were world war II liberals Mm. meaning they were fair, committed to excellence. I, I never felt evaluated by anything but the merits. And I actually think it's it's uh, unfair to call uh, what we're dealing with now liberals. Uh, yes. It's unfair to liberalism. Yeah. Uh, right. These progressives have a much different agenda and, and a, uh, a looser, if non-existent, commitment to freedom. It's almost back to Plato's Republic, that the wise shall rule. They are the wise. And anybody who disagrees with them is not or needs to be told the noble lie, a la Dr. Fauci. So this is mm-hmm. this is a much worse environment than when I started at Columbia, at Columbia University as a freshman in college 50 years ago in, in uh, Wow. Late August of 1973. Did you go straight through all the way through from your freshman to PhD? Or did I'm you an think? example of downward mobility. Uh, I have uh, uh, <laughs> four degrees from Columbia. I, I went to Columbia for undergraduate, got two master's degrees, decided I probably wouldn't get a job. So I went to Georgetown Law School, uh-huh. graduated, practiced law for a few years and Wow. Although I, there was nothing wrong with it, um, they treated me well. I was at a large corporate law firm in number one World Trade Center, 58th floor. Wow. I didn't have a passion for it, and I did have a passion for um, diplomatic history, our role in the Cold War, 
national security. So I went back while I was working to finish my PhD at Columbia in 88. And then late in life in 2016, I have a, an advanced law degree in alternative dispute resolution because Pepperdine has yeah. the best program in it. It was also sort of a, a stimulating intellectual experience and challenged me at a later age because so much of my work is arguing for vigilance. I wanted to make sure uh, to keep me honest. I heard the other side um, in a rigorous way. So that's my career educationally uh, in a nutshell. And how long have you been at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy? This which is, is a beautiful. If you've never been there, you got to go and see it is that a beautiful campus. Place. I, yeah. I've been Pepperdine uh, since August of of 2004. Okay. And I prior to that, uh, I was at the University of Vermont in Burlington for 12 years. Um, and prior to that, um, a Bradley Scholar at the Heritage Foundation and a uh, a professor in the strategy department at the Naval War College. And pr prior to that, uh, that was my law career. Gotcha. Okay. So you've been around and wow, that's a, that's quite a background. That is quite a background. And the, what, what would you say to us young scholars that are, finding themselves in your situation where they're the only ones that seem to be rational or seem to be that have their feet on the ground. As far as this stuff goes, uh, just in terms of how do you, how do you make it socially and how do you, how do you navigate, um, academics? Well, I, I know you said it's worse, but I, I have a profound concern, um, advising young people to go into this business because you've read the books uh, yeah. the ratio of um, progressives to conservatives in academics and my field is is nine to one or 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 worse that's actually this misleadingly optimistic uh, yep. If you read a book, uh, one of John Ellis's uh, books, uh, mm -hmm. Professor Emeritus, UC Berkeley, great scholar, really courageous and insightful on what's happening to the universities. Most of the people who are conservative that artificially elevate the, the, the diversity of thought are 60 and over. If you look at hiring in the last 10 to 15 years, it's more like 40 to 1. And if you look at what's happened to graduate education, uh, the great historian Neil Ferguson, who's now a, a fellow at Hoover, uh, he was at Harvard and he left Harvard in disgust, among other reasons. Um, he did an analysis of Harvard's history and uh government uh, offerings, uh, looking at it comparatively over time. And Harvard was emblematic. In 1952, Harvard offered, according to Ferguson's methodology, 50 or 60 courses in 
traditional political history, military history, uh, politics, great men, great events. And of their history offerings, 80% fell in that category. Today, or this article was published in 2017, but it's only gotten worse. Only five of Harvard's 55 offerings in the same category fall within the traditional category. And, and that is excessively optimistic as an indicator because it doesn't mean that the material is treated traditionally. So if you look at the great scholars of my time, uh, the, the Victor Davis Hansons, um, yes. uh, Bernard Lewis, the great Middle East scholar, the great Richard Pipes of Harvard, uh, and usually in academics, it's the outliers who are right. A, they wouldn't get into graduate school these days because there'd be no one to teach them. Uh, they're the wrong gender. Uh, everything's wrong. And and um, I'll, I think I can explain what's happened um, negatively looking at the Pipes family. Okay. For all Richard Pipes being an outlier, uh, and he was, and I think he is the greatest uh, historian of the Soviet Union, Russia ever, uh, certainly in the top three by any reasonable estimate. Even as an outlier, he and Adam Ulam were at Harvard. His son, Dan, who was a fine Middle East scholar, author of 12 books, elite presses. He's older than I am. When we offered Dan a year at Pepperdine as a fellow, that was the first academic institution that would hire him. Wow. And had his father been on the job market when Dan was, same thing. I don't know of a place in the country other than perhaps Ohio State um, th that could train a Victor Davis Hanson. And if Victor Davis Hanson or a modern version got a PhD, who would hire him? There are a few right. extraordinary young scholars, and I note one, uh, Matt Kronig at Georgetown, who's uh, in his early 40s and uh, really is an, an excellent uh, scholar. Uh, uh, Colin Duke um, at George Mason, he's uh, a minority there. There are a handful of people, but by and large, it's it's become even more difficult to replace the uh, the great historians and, yeah. and analysts we have because we don't teach it. And if we do teach it, uh, it's taught um, as indoctrination. And if someone manages to get a PhD, the job market is, is terrible for them. And uh, I won't identify names. I don't want to speak for people, but I know some very prestigious people I'm part of Victor Davis Hanson's military history group, and uh, we all talk. And it's it's almost heartbreaking, the stories you hear that these people hear from young scholars all the time. Can you help me? And and there are no opportunities, and it's not because of the, uh, the dearth or, or the poor right. quality of scholarship. It's because of the atmosphere in the academy these days. And the, the assault on free speech 
which is, I think, the key part, right? It's not like the Cold War liberals. No, 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 no. This is they believed in free speech. And and I, because of my legal background, and we have a requirement, a great books requirement, and and Columbia, I went through a very rigorous the original great books program. I teach a course um, for our graduate students on the Constitution. And one of the things I emphasize that I think is underemphasized is that our uh, framers thought free intellectual inquiry was so important. People automatically say, yeah, the First Amendment. And I say, hold on, wait, before that, uh, Article 1, Section 8, Congress protected the right patent, intellectual property. We are the first society explicitly to say that intellectual inquiry is so fundamental to freedom, dynamism, decency, that we're going to protect it in the text of our Constitution and double down and protect it again in the in the First uh, Amendment. And, and uh, for those who think that things always are progressing and getting better, We've regressed from the original understanding of the centrality of intellectual freedom. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point about Article One, Section Eight. Wow, I didn't. I never made that connection before with protections. Like well, that. I even right. put it more strongly: universities, as they have uh, uh, their trajectories since the late '60s, when the tenured radicals took over really have betrayed the constitutional principle that uh, made us great in the first place. So uh, mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan frequently said, um, and I agree with him, um, I'm a Reagan internationalist, that um, you can lose your freedom in a generation if you forget your heroes and you forget how you acquired it in the first place. Yeah, Perversely treat heroes and vill- as villains and villains as heroes. And I think we're in the, the midst, deeply in the midst of that type of madness now. Let's go back to this uh, book, uh, In Defense of the Bush Doctrine. Um, now, during the Bush administration, of course, at the, originally at 9-11, there was a lot of consensus, it seemed like, about the fact that we need to respond and it would be appropriate to respond by invading Afghanistan. And then now we have a a major Republican movement in the Republican party that is very critical about the invasion of Iraq, which happened a couple of years later. And so I, I, I think it'd be helpful to get a sense of the defense of the Bush doctrine. Uh, what do you mean by the Bush doctrine? And um, I know there's a lot of isms in here, like like neo-realism and classical realism and liberal multilateralism. And, and then, of course, you've got your position that you're defending, which is moral democratic realism, right? Mm-hmm. Um you have this clash of, of isms. Um, how does that all relate with in, invading Iraq and uh, well, the case uh, for that? 
there are two features of the Bush doctrine um, that are the uh, architectonic premises uh, with Iraq being an application. One is um, Bush argued, I think correctly, that there are some threats that you can't rely on deterrence or containment given the magnitude of the threat and the risk calculus of the regime posing the threat. And therefore, according to Bush, there were times when using force sooner would say, to use Churchill's words, much blood, toil, tears, and sweat, uh, rather than waiting until later. In other words, Bush, mm -hmm. uh, following uh, Thomas Aquinas's just war theory that is silent on whether force should be a first or last resort, and he's silent for reason. Uh, Aquinas believed that should be left to the realm of prudence. So Bush is arguing that, that there are times when uh, preemptive strategies are appropriate. Yeah, uh, I, I really appreciated the couching this in prudence, the classical cardinal virtue of prudence. Yeah, uh, Aristotle's phrenesis, uh, Aquinas's prudence, which is for Aquinas a moral virtue. It's not Machiavellian cunning. And the second part of the Bush doctrine, actually, that people treated controversially, and I think caricatured, is... Um, democratic regime change is a war aim. Uh, contrary yes. to the caricature of the critics, you don't go to war with a country, nor did Bush, nor have we ever, because the regime was not democratic. But if you want to deal with the root cause of a conflict, if someone brings a war to you, uh, regime change, if possible, is not only um, acceptable, it's imprudent not to do it. And what I tried to do is put this um, controversial policy uh, in historical context. And if I had written the book again, I would have spent more time on the Civil War because the first war that we ever waged um to enact regime change was the Civil War and, and the, the goal that had evolved from the Gettysburg Address on uh, not to restore any vestige of the Old South or even the, the, the pre-1861 arrangement right. of putting slavery on the path of ultimate extinction. Uh, Sherman and Grant waged the war in such a way with Lincoln's imprimatur to break the will of the Southern planter class that they identified as the root cause of the conflict and the backbone of secession. Hmm. And then uh, I, I actually think that Reconstruction is probably an example of, of an occupation that ended too soon. Yes, I agree with that. And uh, so, th so that's the first case. And in fact, in World War I, the problem was not that we identified German militarism um, as the root cause and wanted regime change. 
we left too early and Woodrow Wilson, um, instead of uh, pursuing a policy to create a favorable imbalance of power with the democracies and uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, contrary to legend, was not an isolationist. He would have accepted an alliance with Britain and France uh, to keep Germany uh, aspiring to be European rather than make Europe. Oh, you froze up there. Hopefully we'll get you back in a second. Ready? Oh, okay. We did, you just froze up just a tad there, and I got okay. you back now. Okay, sorry. Well, so, uh, you, got, in, uh, you were talking about of, Germany. Yes, instead of staying uh, in Europe after World War One and and consolidating the peace and uh, allowing for a decent democratic German regime to take root, we went home, and Wilson uh, caused that by refusing to compromise. And in putting all his eggs in the illusion of an international organization called the League of Nations that was supposed to substitute the rule of law for the rule of force. This delusion has continued uh, past the League of Nations and the progressive side, um, Obama in particular, wanted to make the United Nations the arbiter of, of, of legitimacy of when and how we use force. And if you really uh, look at it and what that really means, that means that the French, the Russians, and the Chinese will have a veto of on, on anything we do if we accept the ridiculous premise that we should be hostage to the United Nations. Yeah, absolutely. And after World War II, we didn't make the mistake. And we not only instituted regime change, rightly identifying uh, the nature of the regimes of Nazi Germany and, and the imperial Japanese as the root cause, we have stayed there. I am not yes. the past tense. That's we right. have stayed there since. We have stayed on the Korean Peninsula. And if you That's look right. at the foundational document um, of Ronald Reagan's strategy that won the Cold War, uh, National Security Directive Number 75, uh, signed in, in the summer of 1983, the explicit goal of Reagan's pressure was to transform the nature of the regime and make it imperative that the Soviet Union had to take a gamble on Gorbachev because he rightly identified communism as the evil wellspring of the Soviet threat, which we would face um, as long as the Soviet Union exists. Now, uh, people caricature it. Uh, Aristotle says that the mark of intelligence is to make reasonable distinctions. And no one argues we should invade the Soviet Union, uh, <laughs> except a few people after World War II, and wisely we didn't do it, or China today. But the idea of pressuring these countries or denying them outlets so that their internal contradictions force them to collapse 
seems to me to be much more prudent than the uh, delusion that the Chinese regime that still has Mao Zedong as an honored figure is going to evolve into a regime that is going to become part of our system rather than seek to supplant it. So so what people criticized uh, with regard to Bush on on the issue of regime change as a war aim, uh, I, I thought that was a historical. Now, much more legitimate, I think the jury is out. Was Iraq the right place to apply that policy? Mm-hmm. Again, reasonable distinctions. Um, how does how does how does the first Gulf War figure into this? Because I know you talk about that. Well, uh, it, the, it, uh, thank you, because that was a segue. When yeah. people say, you know, we just leapt to this, right? No. There's a concept. There's back. You got to back up. <laughs> There's a long backup. We yeah. we tried every other strategy um, after uh, the the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, the first Bush administration, Bush forty one, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, hoped that Saddam um, had become a different type of leader after the Iran Iraq War. And if you read the transcripts. Uh, prior to the invasion of Kuwait with our ambassador, April Glaspie, uh, she was so conciliatory to Saddam that that you would have thought that uh, we were inviting him into Kuwait rather wow. than discouraging him. All right, that didn't work. Hmm. And then we tried no-fly zones. Yeah, and I we tried this. sanctions, which A, were breaking down and, and also uh, hurting the wrong people. And and also, uh, we found at the uh, end of the first Gulf War, when the UN inspectors went in, mm-hmm. that contrary to um, our optimistic assumptions, Saddam was much closer to realizing a nuclear capability than we had uh, anticipated. And furthermore, had the Israelis uh, not preempted um uh, the Osiric reactor with an attack in May of 1981, Saddam would have had nuclear weapons at the time of the first Gulf War, making the entire enterprise uh, exponentially more risky. I mentioned that because that's the prism through which Bush 43 evaluated the uncertainty of Saddam's behavior. Uh, uh, One, uh, the fear was uh, secrecy. Uh, Iraq had been close the last time. Uh, are they close this time? And with Saddam throwing out the inspectors and and assuming that any rational person who didn't have the weapons w- would take the air out of the tire of any pressure to use force by saying, okay, we don't have it. See, come in. No reason to preempt. Uh, the, the Bush administration resolved uncertainty in the context of the immediate aftermath of 9-11, when the paradigm was, oh, my God, this happened with aircraft. What if Saddam had weapons? And people then have to look right. at what type of a risk taker was Saddam? A big one, Iran-Iraq war, uh, Scud missiles. Uh, he looked to have a risk profile. Yeah. Closer to a Hitler than a Stalin, 
And although both evil, you could deter Stalin given his worldview and calculation of risk. Yeah. But Hitler was a man in a hurry. So uh, the final thing about Iraq is when people say, oh, you know, Saddam uh, didn't have the weapons. Even the Dilfer Commission said, A, Saddam would have had them. B, he was determined to get them. And then C, although I don't know this for sure, why did Saddam act as if his capability was further along than it actually was? I have a theory about that. I'd like to hear it. He thought they did, and everybody oh. was afraid to tell him. <laughs> so um, that's a reasonable I, theory. I I think you can make a case, particularly um, was the Middle East the place to try this? The counter is we tried everything else. And the other thing I will argue then now with vigor, even if you didn't agree with it, we had succeeded after initial mistakes and we recovered from our mistakes uh, far more quickly than we uh, ever recovered in Vietnam, where after 20 years, we still didn't uh, have a the idea of how to fight effectively. What struck me about Iraq is is the steep learning curve uh, under General Petraeus and even Joe Biden said in 2009, didn't agree with this, but it, it was a success and, and Barack Obama snatched defeat from the uh, jaws of victory by a pullout. And, and for those who criticize Iraq, uh, because of that premature pullout, Iran was able to use Iraq to foment a sectarian war starting in Syria that has caused hundreds of thousands of casualties, millions of refugees, and radicalized the entire region. So if we had left 10,000 troops there, even if you reasonably said, well, maybe we shouldn't have done this, it, it would have been uh, wise compared to the alternative, just as I don't know if anybody informed could possibly believe that if there were not 30,000 American soldiers on the 30th, 8th parallel, no. would North Korea behave? Uh, no. Forward deployments, to quote yes. Harold Rood, they're freedom insurance. I, I'd rather fight there yeah. than here. Right. And that goes for our deployment in NATO with Japan, the ANZUS countries, uh, South Korea, and Taiwan. I want to hear about Taiwan in a, in a minute. I want to go back to something you said, uh, just to clarify. Um, you, you mentioned Israel in the early 80s had preemptively attacked. Was that Iraq that you mentioned? Iraq. By the way, we owe Israel for two attacks. Okay. New Yorker um, admitted it, and it's not a natural venue for defending Israel. Yeah. In 2007, the Israelis launched an attack against an unidentified facility in Syria. Um, I'm sorry, uh, in 2013. Okay. 
What was really striking is that the usual suspects that, that would criticize Israel if there was an orange growing uh, over the green line in Europe, the EU countries, the, the, the French, the, mm. the Germans, said nothing. And the reason they said nothing is that we discovered that what the Israelis preempted is a Syrian facility producing weapons of mass destruction, which the Syrians demonstrated that they would use. Bad as the Syrian civil war uh, is, uh, horrible as the, the, the ramifications are, the human ramifications, and, and the, however dangerous the strategic ramifications, imagine if Assad had um, a full plan of panoply of um, weapons right. of mass destruction. So that's another case where, um, and and Germany in the 30s, I, I don't say you do it all the time against prudence. It's an interplay of right. what's the threat, what are the alternatives, what's the cost of waiting, but the idea categorically that that we just wait until the threat. Yeah. Uh, hits us. Right. I think COVID should warn us about that because now yeah. we're in a situation where China, uh, I will stipulate they didn't release it deliberately this time, but they certainly weaponized the virus and wanted it to hurt us more than it hurt them when they unleashed it negligently. And now we're in a situation where uh, literally a mortal enemy can launch an attack on us without even leaving their borders. What's really chilling about the Chinese um, weaponization of COVID after the negligent release, COVID has killed more Americans than all the war combined, more than a million, more than the Civil War, and in past uh, episodes like this, there have been inflection points where even if the United States was lackadaisical in peacetime, mm -hmm. this type of assault on us would galvanize the country. Mm -hmm. And while polls indicate that there's a deepening suspicion of China, President Biden uh, employing a rope-a-dope strategy uh, it's still investigating the cause of COVID <laughs> three years later. Now, now, let me put this in, in graphic context. It's as if three years after Pearl Harbor or four years after Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, we are still investigating whether it's a Japanese attack and we don't want to be racist even though there are rising suns under the fuselages of planes that bear a striking resemblance to Japanese Zero, Mitsubishi Bettys, and their torpedo bomber, the Cates. And we're still not even willing to admit over three years later, close to four, that our enemy did something and weaponized it that killed over a million Americans. We're still debating that. We're still sending Anthony Blinken to Beijing. And, and, and in, an, in an earlier wow. piece I wrote for Victor Davis Hanson, uh, I wondered, what will it take 
to wake us up. And uh, you asked for an observation on President Trump. I, I uh, yes. believe that President Trump, for all his warts, and he has them, and President Trump, um, I don't think is the best candidate to beat Biden, to say the least, although I will vote for him if that's how it turns out. But President Trump did the country an enormous service by having the, the foresight and the courage to put the Chinese threat on the table. And for those who say that was expedient, uh, not so. I've read all of Trump's books, and he was arguing in, in 2001, way before he had any presidential inclinations, that China was a threat and we were asleep. Uh, he also argued uh, very early on for moving the American embassy in, in Israel from, from Terrell Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, he did us an enormous service, um, gaining us energy independence that we've given away. Uh, one of the reasons we've had to go into places like the Middle East, which except for Israel is, uh, is a place where tyranny uh, is the norm, not the exception, is we've had this dependence. Yeah. And and we've cast that away. And President Biden has said, no, it's it's dangerous for us to produce energy. Let's get it from our enemies, Iran, Venezuela, um, Russia. And what's even more perverse about that, even if you take the green agenda seriously, I don't. But let's stipulate that you do. Okay. You really think that the Venezuelans, the, the Iranians, and the Russians are more environmentally friendly than even the worst oil man you can imagine, the caricature of J.R. Ewing in Dallas? So uh, with all due respect, um, yeah. even if Trump was more skeptical about some of our commitments, it was Trump. Yeah who warned the Germans about inordinate dependence on Russian gas. It was Trump who ripped up the START treaty that Mitt Romney said was the worst treaty we had ever signed that enabled Russia to build weapons while constraining strategic defense. Uh, I, I think when the history of, is written on Trump's first term, uh, <laughs> The title of, of the book would be, It Was Much Better Than It Sounds. That, that if you focus on Trump's accomplishments rather than the static, it's like watching an excellent ball game where you don't like the announcer. Trump had a much more successful presidency, including being instrumental in getting the COVID vaccine when we did, because he had the instinct to bet on the entrepreneurs rather than to rely on statism. Uh, Trump had an enormously successful presidency when it came to substance. One of my reservations about Trump now yeah. is that he will not have the same team uh, because of his propensity to alienate his friends. But also, um, as, as a political scientist and historian, Trump will, if he wins again, assuming he does, begin his presidency as a lame duck president. 
-hmm. And students of the American presidency know well that second-term presidencies always are much more problematic because literally you lack the political leverage to threaten your opponents with electoral consequences. So for me, given the magnitude of the Superfund site that Biden has created, we're going to need a president who has the leverage of two terms. And this is mm. this is not Trump specific. This is an institutional right. concern about the history of the of second term presidencies, no matter who it is, since the 22nd Amendment term limited the president. Yeah. Right. What, what do you what are your thoughts on that amendment uh, with the term limits? Are you do you think it's a good idea? There's no perfect idea and you can come up with a, a counterexample. Uh, right. What I would like is symmetry, meaning I don't think presidents should be term limited while Congress isn't. Mm. So I, I would prefer the founders' original notion that, that there should be symmetrical. Yeah, treatment of of term limits or not. Now, for example, I hate to say this, but if we didn't have term limits, Barack Obama would probably be the president of the United States. And Barack Obama would have beaten Donald Trump uh, without my vote, but uh, that would have been likely, although Reagan would have won a third term as well. Um, I think you could make a case for eliminating the 22nd Amendment. Mm -hmm. And I think you could make a case for retaining it, but the case for retaining it is stronger by uh, if there were symmetrical term limits for Congress uh, than if we have only the presidency facing this limitation. I gotcha. I think it is interesting that 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 limitation was placed pretty much right on the heels of of Franklin Roosevelt, right? Winning and, four times, and and I think like, Repu- you know, Republicans, I think, immediately regretted it hmm. because Dwight Eisenhower would have won a third term if he wanted it um, going away. Uh, that this yeah. this is this is the paradox that uh, it's the law of unintended consequences. Um, uh, the the fear was um, that Hawaii. This is why the, uh, the the Southern Democrats didn't want Hawaii as a state because they thought it would be a Republican state, and, and yeah. they thought Alaska would be a Democratic state, and um, it. Uh, it illustrates that uh, the, the limits of human foresight that yeah, make us right. all have to the best of us. So as far as tr- Trump's rhetoric about uh, isolationism, sounds isolationist. Um, he didn't govern. How would you, how would you, how, how would you characterize his? I, his he, didn't, he didn't govern that way. Um, okay. He didn't dismantle NATO. He put pressure on it. And actually, NATO was better prepared to deal with Putin because of Trump, not in spite of Trump. That's uh, interesting. Why do you now? Had, why do you say that? Because 
because many countries actually increased their defense spending okay. and Trump put pressure uh, for NATO to increase defense spending. And actually, Trump, um, I think, psychologically changed the debate in Europe um, and and this this reaction in Eastern Europe to the invasion of Ukraine. And I think the uh, reaction of the Scandinavian countries, which is a big plus for us, having Finland and Sweden and NATO. Trump was the precursor for that by uh, arguing against complacency. Uh, Trump also um, was stalwart despite his rhetoric on Japan, Korea, and actually uh, following Bush 43, which Obama neglected. Uh, he understood that uh, cultivating relations with a decent India that was democratic, um, pro-American, anti-Chinese, worried about Muslim fanaticism, pro-Israel, uh, was also in our interest. What I worry about is Trump, even when he spoke like an isolationist, didn't govern like one. I'm not sure about that for the second term. Mm -hmm. And I think there is an element of Trump's constituency, uh, I talk yes. about an example, That's right. that takes the words more seriously as a guide for policy than President Trump did. Um, I see. Great scholar Henry Now, uh, who, cons uh, who considers himself, we're, we're very close philosophically, a conservative internationalist. Henry's a professor emeritus, fine scholar. How do you spell his last name? N-A-W, uh, George Washington University. Trump was a corrective, not a fundamental repudiation. In fact, um, I, I think it is Obama, uh, despite his apologists, that believes that the United States cannot and no longer should lead in the world. I, I, I believe that Obama believes that, A, we are in decline, and uh, that's a good thing. In my book on Obama, um, yes. I began by contrasting Obama and Ronald Reagan. And, and I think that contrast is really the clue to understanding the particulars of Obama's mindset, which still dominates the Democratic Party. Uh, I wrote this. Uh, Ronald Reagan thought he was an ordinary man leading an extraordinary nation. He was half right. Reagan was extraordinary, as is the nation. Obama still conceives of himself as a world historical figure, making Trump look modest by comparison, but considers the United States so flawed that we can learn more from the United Nations than the world can learn from the most so successful social experiment in history. Or um, to distill it, Obama bought the idea hook, line, and sinker of J. William Fulbright of Arkansas, the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War senator, that the prime threat to the world is what Fulbright called the arrogance of American power. Yes. We're the threat. Wow. Versus Winston Churchill's belief that that Reagan um, believed fervently 
that we need a preponderance of power on behalf of, of the forces of freedom, and that when the United States is weak, it's more dangerous for everybody. And uh, in the words of my local heroes from Hawthorne, uh, the bad guys are more likely to leave us alone mm -hmm. if we are strong and credible than if we are weak and irresolute and uh, unilaterally disarm. And I think, alas, yeah. that the history of the 20th and 21st centuries and the Obama and Biden administrations uh, are yet another sad lesson of, of what happens when you don't have a clear understanding morally or geopolitically of who your friend yeah, is. Right. Can we go back to Taiwan? You yes. mentioned Taiwan. Yeah. What's your assessment of, of what um, PRC's intentions are with, with Taiwan and and where should we stand on that? How do how should we be prepared for that? Um, how should we respond to that? Well, I guess I need to hear what you have to say first. What China has in mind for Taiwan. I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. Is what they have in mind for us eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if you read Chinese document number nine, and there are some then fine books on China that uh, have challenged the uh, naive consensus that they want to be part of our system rather than dominate it. Uh, Rosh Doshi's uh, fine books, uh, Jonathan Ward, uh, Michael Pillsbury, all warn us, and, and this isn't just Xi Jinping, the Chinese remain a Leninist-run party that sees American freedom as an existential threat to their goal to make the world safe for Chinese tyranny. And if you look at China's behavior, the longest, most comprehensive peacetime military buildup in history, still ongoing, mm -hmm. uh, the predatory economic warfare they're waging against us as we naively, um, our corporations um, invest in China when China is basically using our corporations the way Tony Soprano used an Italian restaurant in the Sopranos to strip it of its assets and bankrupt the original owner. The Chinese read document number nine, which Xi Jinping sent to his party. You can find the link in the New York Times, uh, September of 2013, Jonathan Ward scholarship, uh, Michael Pillsbury, Ross Doshi, all underscore it. The Chinese seek hegemony, not just regionally, but globally, with Taiwan as the first step. And for those who think that Taiwan is a bridge too far, uh, I hope fervently uh, as the military balance deteriorates in the Western Pacific, we think again and act urgently to 
redress this uh, grave danger. How, how, can, how can we do that? We need a massive, comprehensive military buildup that immediately supplies Taiwan with the types of weapons necessary to raise the threshold of pain for any Chinese cross-channel invasion or blockade. Um, Hal Brands and Mike Beckley, and I agree with them, and I've made this case before, I think a showdown over Taiwan can come sooner rather than later. As soon as the early days of the second Biden administration, because there is a dangerous combination of forces that, that makes China perhaps willing to roll the dice. Mm -hmm. One, they have amassed a significant advantage while we've been asleep. Two, the country is divided. Mm -hmm. yeah. Three, despite Biden's rhetoric, the defense budget and his real cuts in it don't match even his rhetorically mild concern about China. And four, if you look at his actual behavior on China, sending Anthony Blinken, who stood there mute as his Chinese counterpart, woke him, lectured us on our shortcomings. And instead of reacting on American soil, Alaska, outrage, how can you say anything about us when you're the country that gave us the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, murdered 70 million people, you're one of the most repressive countries in history, and you have a million Muslims at the moment in concentration camp, don't lecture me on human rights, go home. Blinken's response was, yeah, we're trying to do better, and we're we're trying to learn uh, for on top of Afghanistan, the, the, the defense, cutting the defense budget, sacrificing enemy uh, 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 energy independence, uh, not controlling our border. Uh, yeah. Our cities have become what Thomas Hobbes described the state of nature, mm -hmm. nasty, solitary, brutish, and <laughs> life not so short. We're sending all the signals that we are incapable of identifying and responding to a danger. One, that's going to tempt China. And what's going to add to the temptation is that in many ways, the long-term fundamentals for China are pessimistic. Okay. They're, going to reach, they're going to reach a Gorbachev moment, as all communist regimes do, that you can't combine total control with sustained dynamism. Mm -hmm. When they do, I don't want them to face a Carter, but a Reagan. Right. And China does. I don't want them to face a Biden, but somebody yeah. understands and with the capability to back that understanding up. So I see a situation uh, on the horizon where the Chinese may calculate the way the imperial Japanese did. This is an opportunity of a lifetime with Biden in the White House yep. to reverse these negative trends mm. and literally demolish the credibility of our alliance system in the Indo-Pacific, the world's most important power center, by 
intimidating Taiwan into subservience, which will render Japan, the entire first and second island chain, indefensible and will have negative reverberations with every ally we have in any region of the world. If we sit there and allow a vibrant Chinese democracy, Taiwan, to go down and and end in slavery. Uh, Look, the reason why Xi Jinping fears Taiwan is he worries that freedom is contagious. The narrative is for China, the Chinese are not meant for freedom. Yeah. Well, uh, Taiwan proves that's wrong. In some ways, uh, Xi Jinping's calculation is much like Putin's with Ukraine's. Putin said, yeah, the Russian soul, Dostoevsky, freedom is not possible here. You need a strong man. Well, if Ukraine succeeds, Russians may get ideas otherwise. So, you know, when people say it's defensive, Xi Jinping, Putin, uh, that's a semantic game. If your idea of of defensive is you can't tolerate any alternative but your tyranny, what's the operational difference? And it it doesn't change the fact that if we don't lead the coalition to stop this, which is well within our capabilities, there's no substitute for us. There just isn't. Allies can help supplement, but without the United States, there's no plausible balancing coalition in the Indo-Pacific that can stop Chinese ambitions to dominate first the Indo-Pacific and then beyond. So it's up to us. And frankly, we we need a leader with the moral clarity and the strategic foresight and the persuasive powers to make this case the way a Truman did in the 1940s, and the way Reagan did after the dismal, uh, depressing 1970s, when many Americans, including Republicans, thought we had a managed decline. Nixon and Kissinger, uh, I hope Richard Nixon write his final book. They were deeply pessimistic about the United States. And, And to Ronald Reagan, who said, decline is not inevitable, it's a choice. And if we choose rightly, our best days are ahead of us. I think that's true now, but we've been choosing wrongly, with few exceptions, for a very long time. And we're we're reaping the whirlwind for that right now. And a second Biden term, and I would be delighted for you to have me back sometime and tell me I was wrong. <laughs> I don't think I am. Um, Really, this um, catastrophe at home and abroad. Do you think that Biden is going to win a second term? I think, unfortunately, he could lose, but he could win. Yeah. Because I think that's a really soft way of putting it. Well, because because Trump has. Yeah. It's almost like the Iran-Iraq war of the 80s when Henry Kissinger said, it's a shame both sides couldn't lose. If you look at the most recent polling data, uh, Biden's approval rating, uh, 39%, 58% negative, good news. 
but same for Trump. Yeah. 49% of people think that, that Biden's a crook. Good news, except 56% for Trump. Hmm. Uh, many people think Biden is, is too old, uh, three quarters right. of the electorate, but over 50% of the electorate think that Trump is too old. And then we have Trump having problems with a demographic that was the swing vote, mm -hmm. uh, Republican affluent uh, women in the suburbs. And, and let's say, to be mild about it, that Trump's reaction to his harassment case with the e. Jean Carroll, oh, first of all, legally it's bogus. Trump has been treated unfairly. The founders are rolling over in, in their grave uh, watching the weaponization of political differences, trying to make it criminal. Uh, so, so Trump has, at, at a personal level, uh, an absolute right to feel outraged. But when yeah. someone, even if it's a meretricious suit, um, sues you for, for sexual harassment, and your reaction is, oh, she's not my type, and neither is the plaintiff's attorney, and, and you're trying to Bill yeah, I saw that to the coalition. Right. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, I um, not a good re-election strategy. I, 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 I think that anybody uh, has to um, realize that Trump is um, is is um, a problematic winner, given that he is. Yeah, his peak has been forty-six twice. How many times do we go with this? And, and I think that we have candidates. Yeah, could do much of what. Trump would do at his best, but with a greater um, prospect of electability. Why do you think you, you mentioned earlier that Trump alienates his friends? What what's your read on him personally? Why does he do that? Why does he become that kind of a person? Because, I mean, it has really grave. I think he has he could be he could have been a great president for a second term but i i don't think he realizes he's got a ceiling here and the ceiling well, I, also, is not... I i i also think um and for all the the good he did i i think he has um a character issue yeah for instance uh, january 6th the idea that this is sedition is nonsense Mm -hmm. It's just nonsense, and it is sure. it is appalling uh, that uh, Trump is being treated that way. Point one, point two. When it comes to a real conspiracy that actually should alarm us much more, it is the sustained effort of many of the precincts of government to invalidate Trump's election before he even took office. The FBI, the CIA, with the complicity of the Obama administration, the bogus FISA warrant that they knew was bogus, uh, the Mueller investigation that knew it had nothing and was trying to... to, to how, how do you convict someone of obstruction of justice for a non-existent crime? Yeah. And then doing it the second time all of that. That said, Trump did not behave well. Well, and he's he, like, I think his, 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 what people liked about him was he was not a politician, but then 
to run but again, you have to be a politician. So but he's not a state, but, but there's doubt as to whether he's a statesman as well, because okay. had he reacted differently, I'm not saying graciously, because in the larger sense, not in the sense he, he, he uh, thought, the election of 2020 was corrupt. Biden got a pass. No foreign policy debate. Uh, and the idea of early voting, judges deciding that when the Constitution explicitly says only the legislature, there are all sorts of legitimate things to complain about the way Andrew Jackson complained about the uh, election of 1824. And Jackson was not known for his mild personality or graciousness. But Trump took that even further. And in the process of doing that, he cost the Republicans the Senate. Many of the things that uh, we don't like that Biden did, Trump made possible because he had he reacted differently, not not uh, right. without defiance, but differently. Yeah. There's no way the Republicans would have lost those Georgia seats. And I think a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of people like Trump because they're so upset by kind of what started this whole interview where you were talking about the cultural takeover by yes. the left. And, and, and so it seemed like it was refreshing to see some guy just kind of, you know, take a blowtorch. <laughs> and, and, and it was refreshing. And as yeah. Davis Hanson put it, and, and I had put it that way, even before, uh, along with him, um, Trump was like a gunslinger that is not meant for normal times, Shane. Mm -hmm. uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Oh, yeah. But he's not meant for all times. And I gotcha. sadly, Trump cost the Republicans the Senate a second time, if we're honest. Look at look at the elections of um, 2022. Every candidate Trump endorsed but one lost and and in Pennsylvania and other places the alternative candidate would likely have won uh the wizard of oz in Pennsylvania uh, uh Herschel Walker and, and this gets to another issue about president trump that that i think we have to take seriously can he put his agenda above his ego and and desired to be vindicated uh this is painful right. for me to say because yeah. i was at the yeah. university of vermont and i know bernie sanders i prepared a debate opponent of his and he's a miserable fellow besides being a stalinist uh, he did a yeah. honeymoon in the soviet union and he's rich <laughs> i even played him in mock debate yeah we need a single payer I could even do that. But Bernie Sanders did something that from his perspective was very statesmanlike. Going into the summer of 2020, trailing Biden, Sanders calculated, here's my choice. Do I go down in flames and hurt the prospect of the Democrats winning? Or am I willing to accept 
my agenda being furthered. And the deal Biden made essentially uh, with Sanders yeah, was sure. we get 90 percent of what you uh, want domestically. Please support me. I wish Trump was of the temperament, and I know some people very high up of it have advised him, play the elder statesman. Right. Confound yeah. the Democrats who want to run against you by saying, I'm not running, but here's my agenda, and I want a candidate that furthers my agenda. Uh, I think the odds of, of of Biden or Gavin Newsom, who I think is the likely alternative if it's not Biden, winning with Trump stepping aside in that statesman-like manner increases significantly. And I have another fear about 2022, uh, Republican overconfidence that uh, yeah. many elections should have uh, sobers uh, us up about it right consider this we've lost seven out of the last eight presidential elections with the popular vote and in 2022 everybody was very optimistic the democratics are so are so vulnerable and, and those gains given the distress of the country off-year elections were meager so so i, I yeah. think we have to go into this Right. With our best foot forward, nominating the candidate who has principles that we admire, who has the best chance to win. I don't think that's Donald Trump. Again, I'm not an anti-Trumper. Right. I, I would crawl over. You're just not an always Trumper. So that's I, not the same as being never Trumper. <laughs> I, I also think there's another danger, frankly, Um We ought to be judging candidates based on their principles and their records. By making, a, by hitching our uh, wagon to charisma and personality, we're doing the opposite. We're beginning to define our positions by the vagaries of a personality. Mm -hmm. that's that's the opposite of ronald reagan who said when people said he's a great communicator reagan modestly responded half right half wrong but half right i'm a great communicator because what i'm communicating is great wow. it's my principles and and i i i see the 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 sort of the uh, the instinct of many people who are very honorable to contort themselves to defend everything Trump does. I, and I, I would say that about any um, personality-driven movement. Uh, I, I think that's the opposite of statesmanship and what the founding fathers rightly intended. And so I have a deeper concern about that as well. How would you define the term statesman? And how are you using it differently than politician? A statesman uh, is someone who is grounded in the cardinal virtue of prudence, right th reason about right things to be done. Someone who deliberates well, judges well, and acts well 
and has an innate sense and a cultivated disposition effectively to reconcile the desirable and the possible, someone who puts the country ahead of their person and understands the importance of American exceptionalism while recognizing the fallibility of all human beings and even the best of countries. And, and so a statesman, I'll give you an example. Yes. Is Alexander Hamilton, when he confronted blackmailers, Maria and James Reynolds, who wanted inside information, sort of a, an early version of the stock market uh, insider trading scandal um, in exchange for not disclosing the information about an affair. And and Hamilton was set up. I, I, that's the first time I heard hearing about this. Uh, yeah, Hamilton said no. Not only am I going to go say no, Hamilton went to his political opponents, Jefferson and Madison, and said, "Here it is. Do with me as you want. The country's more important." That's to Hamilton's credit, and to Jefferson and Madison's credit, they said, "We're not going to." exploit this because the country's more important. That's what I mean. Gotcha. And and what I mean is, and as Nikki Haley put it well, when she called the Senate a nursing home, Uh (laughs) if you look at Dianne Feinstein, um, Mitch McConnell, you you know, George Mm -hmm. Washington um, could have been king, could have been president forever. Even Moses going into the promised land when God says no, understandably, Moses argues to the point that God said, stop it. You're not going in. George Washington, in the farewell address, said, I'm not running again. King George of Great Britain, no fan of Washington. Indeed, uh, Washington would have been hung as a traitor had King George won and suppressed the revolution. said, I can't believe it. If Washington actually has this type of civic virtue and renounces power when he could keep it, he would be, to quote King George, the greatest statesman of the age. Hmm. That's a statesman versus a leader. When you say somebody's a leader, so is Hitler. Right. Statesman implies leading to the right place in the right way, treating the population as citizens rather than subjects. Winston Churchill, I think, put it very well, um, something Anthony Fauci never believed or understood. Churchill said of the British people, they're always at their best when you level with them. Hmm. And that's what a statesman does. Uh, a statesman, to paraphrase Lincoln, always respects public opinion, but is not a slave to it. That's a statesman. I have a concern about, I'm really interested to see what you think about this. You you have, you seem to have this optimism like Reagan did, uh, you know, which seems to be crucial to your point about 
you know, in defense of the Bush doctor and, and Obama, we need to have this muscularity and, and, and an attention span. And we have to learn from history, not only the civil war, but the world war one, world war two, the cold war. We have to learn the right lessons from the Gulf war and, and the war on terror. That takes a huge, enormous attention span. And my worry is with students and who graduate college and becomes become possible voters and and leaders business leaders and uh teachers and the the direction of the country domestically uh the officers that that go into the military are trained at these leftist academies and i think like you said like when you were, went through columbia you said that those democrats were the free speech democrats they were the world war ii democrats they had uh they were different than now and i'm worried about the the training the officers are getting and a lot of the enlisted people like i i mean i was enlisted in the navy i i served with most of the people i served with had college degrees and uh, a lot of the senior NCOs, the NCOs and senior NCOs, they get college degrees. Some of them get master's degrees. So the leadership of the military, I'm, basically I'm boiling this down to, I'm worried about a woke military. I'm worried. Do, do you worry about that? I, I worry well, about uh, well, we're, we're whether we're same, able to do this anymore. Well, we're, we're on the same page on that. I was part of a Fox documentary, um, on America's role in the world that that um, I think came out in the spring where I I made those very points about the military. And I also have a, a personal um, experience with it. Uh, in 2022, uh, after some discussions, um, the commandant of the... Uh, Air Force uh, Graduate School of Aerospace and Cyber War uh, kindly invited me to apply and recruited me to come to the school um, and made me an offer. And although I'm happy with Pepperdine, as a public service, I, I would have considered it mm -hmm. strongly at this stage of my career because of, of the threats gathering and doing my part. Where is that school located? Montgomery, Alabama. So I would have traded Malibu for Montgomery. Yeah. Would have done it. Mm -hmm. But I would have had to wait a year for tenure. And at that time, President Biden was literally clearing the military academies illegally, actually, uh, out of all, all conservatives on the advisory board. Uh, H.R. McMaster, the great General Jack Keane. And so I I, uh, I I couldn't take that risk. But one of the reasons the general brought me in and, and, uh, and, and the academic dean, most of the faculty and most of the students were on the left. Uh, I, I, I sat in and pushed back on a on a discussion of the Chinese Civil War, where we had all these people in uniform um, bashing Chiang Kai-shek, who has flaws, 
and, and extolling Mao Zedong. And I, I, oh my God! Well, I responded and I said, yeah, you know, I I could hear this in the faculty lounge at the U, at UCLA. I don't need to yeah. uh, hear it here. I, I have a terrible concern. Well, look, we've always had political generals and wars uh, sifted out the warriors from from the bureaucrats. That happened the Civil War with Lincoln, uh, World War Two, but we've gone one step. Further, we have, um, and I think General Milley is the poster child for this. They're more concerned about transgender restroom facilities and ferreting out non-existent um, uh, clan members in the Air Force because they're Christians. Assuming that if you're a Christian, you're obviously a bigot. Gotcha. Then they are training warriors, and yeah. I am. Great. And, and the other thing, uh, the point I made, too, is military recruitment is way down. And there's yes, a reason for that. And one of the reasons is that the people who have gone into the military casualties have mainly been from red state America. Yeah. And when you keep telling those people that are putting their lives on the line for you, you're an ist. You're a racist, sexist, this, that, the other thing. You got all these phobias. Don't be surprised when parents say, don't do that to your son or daughter because the country is ungrateful. So I, I yeah. think I, I agree with you, not only substantively, but in terms of intensity, that this is a terrible problem. So does that does that mitigate your your case here at all in these books? Uh, because or or would you add to it that that the American people? I mean, look at how fickle we are. We're so fickle. We we elect Obama. I mean, we invade Iraq, then Obama. It's right after that that we we lose our steam uh, in terms of policy. I'm not saying well, the American people, but but we're we're and the, you add to that the cultural institutions, the 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 advance of the parasitic left on things that are are good. Um, it, it seems like it's exhausting to to counter is. that. And but we do, but we do have uh, corrective mechanisms. And Winston Churchill put it uh, aphoristically, humorously, but um, the United States always does the right, right thing after trying everything else. And for all our <laughs> problems, uh, when you look at COVID and other things, uh, and you look at the alternative political systems, look at the Great Britain, the model of stability, uh, four prime ministers in six months, France speaks for itself, Uh I, I and, and look at Ronald Reagan's um, inaugural address, the first one. I am optimistic if you have the right captain at the helm and the American people um, usually do the right thing eventually. But Reagan put it very well. He said, we didn't get into this mess in a day. And it's going to take a long, concerted effort to get us out of this hole. And this is one of my concerns about Trump 
running as a lame duck at best if he wins, uh, we're, we're gonna. This is going to be not a single-term corrective. We have all sorts of things that we have to rebuild, renew, and remember, including what the military is for, and including uh, yeah, why marketplace generates more wealth, yes. and including why we are a great country. And as Victor Davis Hanson says, you don't have to be great to be and perfect to be good. And if you search for perfection, given uh, perfect leaders, perfect countries, it's a contradiction in terms. And and I, I I'm also optimistic because honestly, if if you're not, yeah. Uh, there are two dangers, complacency and despair. Uh, during the 80s, Francis Fukuyama's epitomized it. The world's becoming democratic. Democracies don't fight true. It's irreversible. We're at militant. We don't have to worry anymore. This is wrong. But the last, uh, the, the end of history, the last man, that one. History is not going to end except uh, and for an event beyond time. And, and Reagan's right. Every generation is going to face a threat to freedom, and and uh, we're going to have to fight for it and remember how we got it in the first place to sustain it. But that said, decline is still a choice. If you look at our fundamentals, hmm. uh, saying it's hopeless actually absolves us from the responsibility right. of doing something. Yeah. And and a I don't think it's hopeless, and b. Um, as Churchill said in 1940, when um, Ramsey McDonald, when uh, Halifax, Lord Halifax says we should negotiate with Hitler and see if he's serious, Churchill said, even if I lose, I would rather choke on my blood fighting than giving in. And, yeah. and A, I think um, our situation is by no means hopeless. Mm. And, and B, Given the precious gift of freedom that we have, and given what my parents' generation did for it, they overcame the Depression, they won World War II, they laid the architecture for defeating the evil empire of the Soviet Union, they provided for us a, a much less admirable generation, the baby boomers who spawned many of these bad things that we're talking about now. Right, right. I, I think we owe it to our forefathers and our children. Uh, as Churchill would put it, never give up, never give in, never, ever, ever give in on, on issues of fundamental principle. And I think if we, look, if, you, if we were having yeah. this conversation in the 80s, in the 70s, uh, the lacerating <laughs> debate over Vietnam, the the misery index, Carter's inflation, Carter's malaise speech. Oh, yeah, it was really bad. The killer rabbit, the, the belief on the Republican side, Nixon and Kissinger, that we were declining uh, Athens to a rising Sparta. Um, Reagan came along amidst this great de despair and said our better days are, are ahead of us and 
people deride it. We we've made Reagan into uh, into a uh, uh, an iconic figure in retrospect. He was very controversial. He was laughed. Oh at. yeah, yeah. They called him all sorts of a- things, and, and Reagan just held his ground and said. Um, if we remember, we don't panic. We remember what made us great in the first place. Um, our best days are ahead of us. And I, I think we need to remember that before we indulge in, in the sin of complacency or despair, which is the opposite of what we need, responsibility. Pepperdine University, for those who don't know, is uh, in this uh, place called Malibu. And it's if you can't picture it, it Malibu doesn't really have a, a town feeling. Um, there's there's a Pacific Coast Highway that goes along many miles of coastline. And then you, you, you look to your right if you're going north and you see the big Pepperdine campus, you can't miss it. And there's two Starbucks. There's one down in the country mart area. And then there's one right by kind of Ralph's there and there's post office. And I wanted to share that I used to see professor Kaufman down at that Starbucks and he would talk to anybody who would talk to him and dressed exactly like you'd see him right now. And he was, he, you, he would debate and talk to anybody. And, uh, the, the composure that you always had and the, your willingness to talk to anybody including homeless people, because they were always around. <laughs> and I saw you there several, many times. And the last time I saw you doing that was several years ago. But Although uh, in Malibu, you have to be careful. Very wealthy people look like homeless That's right. People. That's right. You and, could be talking there, to some and there are soap sadly, opera star. There are sadly homeless people, but one of the people yeah. that I, I assume was down on his luck uh, <laughs> was the owner of two... ABA professional basketball teams and got a billion dollar payout. So, so, so in Malibu, yeah. um, uh, I, I remember my wife is from the Northeast and a more uh, refined background than mine. And we were sitting and having lunch with her parents and several guys shouted out to me. And my wife said, you know, why is it you always know the bums and the people who look? And I said, Ann, they may look at, but X does this, Y does this, Z does that, and uh, they are extraordinarily affluent and successful. Yeah. Malibu is is a warning. Never judge a book by its cover. That's true. That is true. I uh, I admire your willingness to just talk to anybody, and 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 then your positive attitude too. So I wanted to ask before we uh, shut down for today. Just your about a little bit about your religion, if you if you're willing to share. I know you teach at a Christian school, but does that have? Do you have a religion that gives you hope? I do, and I have a, uh, I have a something in common with the early Christians. Um, I, although um, I dis, I discovered recently, uh, I am of twenty five plus percent Irish Catholic ancestry from the Southern counties, uh, Munster and County Cork. I didn't know that till late in life. Uh, I, I am from a Jewish background. 
And so I am a convert to Christianity from Judaism. And I think before that I was, um, my home was largely secular, but I was always interested, curious, positively inclined to Christianity and, and converted to Christianity when I was in college. But At Columbia? Point, yes. Wow. Was, because in the great books, we actually read Paul's letter to the Romans um, wow. and, and, um, and the Gospel of Matthew and, and many other things. But on the other hand, I call myself now a philo-Semitic Christian. So I'm I'm very pro-Israel and uh, mm -hmm. admire and and I agree with the great uh, Christian historian Oz Guinness who wrote a wonderful book recently uh, of Sinai uh, uh, Exodus being our Magna Carta. Uh, I, I I I agree with George Washington and uh, John Adams of, of the enduring debt we owe to Judaism. So I am a Christian who is um, unabashed in his admiration for uh, Israel and wow. many of the traditions of Judaism that um, Christianity wisely incorporated. Well, we've been talking to Professor Robert G. Kaufman, author of In Defense of the Bush Doctrine and um, Dangerous Doctrine about Obama, and also delightful book about Henry Jackson uh, today. And I'm so grateful. I mean, you helped, you said you, you helped Nixon write his last book? I did, Beyond Peace. I'm not a Nixon person. In fact, the Jackson book, uh, Jackson was the most uh, formidable cr critic of uh, Nixon's policy of detente. And Reagan largely agreed with the Jackson yeah. critique and the underlying premises, but I did have the opportunity to. to, to you help. met him. You met Nixon. I spent seven or eight times with him working on it. Wow! And I, I have to say, um, the Bush. What was book, your impression of him? He was very much like himself. <laughs> what, meaning, uh, I know that sounds flippant. It kind of is. But one of the observations people made to me when I was around Nixon is I didn't seem to be nervous at all. I wasn't. I tend not to be nervous around political figures. But I thought a little bit with Nixon, and, and I realized I had read so much about Nixon from so many perspectives that, that I really did know him. I could almost finish his sentences. Um Wow. which made working with him easy, easier. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, with regard to the Bush book, because uh, it, right. it made me a pariah for a while, even though the reviews were very good. Hmm. Um, in March, President Bush, George W. Bush, came to Pepperdine, and it was a great honor. Uh, before he spoke at a Pepperdine event, he asked to see me, um, to thank me for the book and to talk for 15 minutes and, and to meet my wife as well. And uh, I was proud of the moment. I admire him and uh, thought it was uh, 
a great vindication. So, oh yeah, but I had no idea when I wrote this and and came out with it uh, th- that it was going to turn out that way because uh, when I defended President Bush in public at the University of Vermont after nine eleven, um, I was the most unpopular man in in the state of Vermont. Wow, wow, yeah, I. I became a faculty member in 2005, initially at a community college, and then later at Loyola Marymount University, and uh, then at Pepperdine. My time at Pepperdine, I didn't have those issues, but but Loyola Marymount, man, I, I cannot believe those. I, I did not, I couldn't believe how hated, not only Bush, but just any Republican. Just it seemed like it was anybody. It didn't matter. It was it was Mitt Romney? They they hated him. They he was a racist. He was a phobia. And then when Trump got elected, it was like, oh, oh Mitt, Mitt Romney, what a wonderful guy! And I'm like, well, oh, I remember what you were saying about Mitt Romney. Well, it's it's almost flippant, but true. A, a progressive is someone who expresses admiration for a Republican who's out of office that they didn't like at the time. Yeah. So so it's always a uh, historians do it. Stephen Ambrose hated Nixon, uh, wrote books about Eisenhower. I wish Republicans were like that. And then after Reagan won, Ambrose wrote a three-volume biography of Nixon and said, oh, Nixon was a pretty good guy. And and now in retrospect, why are people like the Bushes, even though especially George W. Bush People hated, vilified him at the time, and vilified Reagan. Uh, That's right. uh, It's um, it's uh, I'll get myself in more trouble. Um, Many progressives um, who um, Charles Crowther made this point, uh, Hmm. who who bash a a decent, imperfect but democratic Israel, um, uh, will will weep for the dead in the Holocaust. And as uh, Nanyahu put it, well, if you're concerned about just, here's your chance. Um, why yeah. don't you say something nice Ooh. about those who are living for a change? And, right, and that, right. uh, uh, that, that's that's the mark of a progressive. Their magnanimity is to the dead and the defeated, not the living. Wow. Amazing. I, I'm amazed at your attention span, your mastery of details, and uh, what I'm getting from this and what I'm hoping to impart from my students, because I'm using these books, teaching international relations this week, this, uh, this week and in the next several weeks, we'll be talking about your books uh, over at Azusa Pacific University. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to give the books the best shot they have with these students, but I recognize that a lot of them, they just don't have the attention span to to grapple with all of the the, the well, well, way, things enough. you lay out. So. Uh, and I make you an offer sometime. If they want me in the flesh sometime, some afternoon, happy to do that. All right. Are you teaching on Thursdays? <laughs> this Thursday would be bad wife to the airport. That's but, tomorrow. Yeah. But in, in general, um, uh, on a Thursday between four and seven is when the class is. Yeah, so. that uh, that's possible. Um, okay, I'll get at, Pe- at Pepperdine. I nicknamed myself 
Dr. Evil. So you can tell them that Dr. Evil in, in the flesh may be willing to come to talk to them. Oh, that would be delightful. All right. Well, I'll be giving you a call then. Okay, good. Thanks thank for you, doing this. Thank you, for, thank you very much for your time and just sharing your wisdom and also your incredible optimism, which I guarantee that is what is going to stay with uh, people who maybe not be able to follow all the, you know, the details, but the general sense that you have that, yeah, it's really bad, but there's hope. That's a huge thing. And I really well, appreciate it. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, despair is a sin. Hmm. There's always a chance. Wow. There's a chance. Wow. And I'm I'm a Boston sports fan, so I so I saw Tom Brady in the Super Bowl with Atlanta. You never give up. That, that's awesome. Thank you, Dr. Kaufman. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.